You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Alright. Reading from 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord of the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Uh, well, hi everyone. Uh, my name's Sam and if I haven't met you yet, I'd uh, love to later on. I might just open in prayer. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, you are indeed a great God and you're also a good God. I pray that through your word you will reveal more of yourself and more of your glorious plans and that this will be a great encouragement for us all. Amen. Uh, Today we continue our series on Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians and we've seen so far uh, that this is primarily a letter of encouragement. Again and again, Paul is affirming the church and their trust in Jesus, urging them on, saying, well done, keep going, do so more and more. As we've heard in previous weeks, Paul does this by framing his encouragement around the three theological virtues of faith, love and hope. What are those? Well, faith, how you become a Christian, that Jesus died to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Love, how you are called to live as a Christian, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. And hope, what Christians look forward to, that all tears will be wiped away and everything will be made new. So far, we're focused primarily on faith and love. Uh, We've heard that the Thessalonians have maintained their faith in the Gospel despite difficulty. Paul has also commended them for their love for one another and indeed for the whole of God's family. This passage today, though, uh, focuses on the third theological virtue of hope. Now, when I was in around about my second year of uni, I was having a conversation with a really good friend of mine about what I believed. And he said to me that, in his view, Christians are really only Christians because they're afraid of death. They cling to fanciful ideas about heaven to avoid escaping reality. Now, I wonder how you would have responded Now, at the time, what I said was something like, oh no, I'm a Christian because I believe in the historical Jesus, that he was in very nature God, and that he was sent to me as a doctor is sent to heal the sick, that he died and that he was raised to life to prove it all. Now, in a sense, that was fine. Uh, But as I look back, I think it was actually a missed opportunity. Uh, You see, perhaps I shouldn't have downplayed the, the Christian belief in an afterlife, as though it was somehow embarrassing. 
is a wonderful and transforming part of the life, in fact. Uh, sorry, and transforming part of the faith, in fact. As we read in verse 18, encourage each other with these words, these words of hope. Remembering that there's more to come, and indeed greater to come, isn't only a great final goal to look forward to, but having hope is also a huge source of encouragement in the here and now. During moments of loneliness or depression, knowing that there's a glorious and fulfilling future has helped me to appreciate the things I have. And when my efforts at work fail and my striving for long-term improvements seem futile, knowing that there's a future renewal of all creation in which work will succeed, fulfil and last and in which our efforts now do, in fact, in a mysterious way, actually matter for the future, uh, that boosts my daily sense of motivation and positivity. Far from being something far-fetched that I was shy to talk about it head-on, hope and life after death is wonderful and hope can be life-changing. Christianity holds out hope and hope is on offer. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher that Adam Humphreys mentioned a few weeks ago, puts it this way. First, Christianity should be made lovable. Then, uh, it should make the good wish it were true. Then show that it is indeed true. Unlike me at uni, uh, we should perhaps not open with our logical arguments of truth. Uh, Before that, we should show friends why they should want Christianity to be true. Well, this passage certainly should make people, the good, as Pascal says, wish it were true. What a wonderful, encouraging, reassuring, life-giving thing the Christian hope is. Are you encouraged by the Christian hope? Do you know exactly what it is? Could you explain the hope you have to a neighbour or a colleague? So let's get into the passage and as we do, we'll see four things. Uh, One, the grief in the face of death is appropriate and right. Two, that hope is a powerful resource for dealing with the death of a loved one. Three, the encouragement of the knowledge of hope. And four, the confidence of Christian hope. So that was the appropriateness of grief, hope as a resource, the encouragement of knowledge and the confidence of the Christian hope. Before we get to these key points, we need to set the scene. Look look with me at verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Evidently, the Thessalonian church recently had someone from within their midst passed away. So the passage is primarily speaking into the pastoral situation in which a Christian has died and how to deal with that. Last week, Stu Williamson talked to us from the passage that follows this one, chapter 5. And one key thing that he mentioned was the confusion about the timing of the day of the Lord. But what we learned from today's passage is that it wasn't just confusion around the timing of Jesus' return, it was also fear around the timing. They thought that Jesus was coming quite soon and they were worried that anyone who died before that time might possibly miss out. In response, we see that Paul in this letter giving the clear message that none will be lost. Now, 2,000 years later, we don't share this same worry. We often assume that we'll probably all die before Christ's return. Now, we could very well be wrong about that, um, but either way, we all benefit from the reminder that we have assurance that none who place their trust in Jesus will miss out, no matter how untimely their death may be. 
Now, I'm sure that all of us have also experienced the death of a non-Christian in our lives and you might be dealing with grief or big unanswered questions about that. If so, I'd encourage you to open up, talk to someone you trust, maybe open up to a minister or a close friend, mentor or counsellor. However, as this passage is speaking to the case of a Christian dying, uh, that's what I'll be talking about. How does a Christian and a Christian community live in light of the reality of death? If we are a Christian, there will also be implications for thinking about our own mortality and perhaps this passage will help you talk about the hope you have in the face of death with friends. So someone has died, uh, but this is not just any group of people. We've just heard how this church is excelling at Christian brotherly love. They're a tight-knit community. What must they have been going through? Into this situation, what does Paul say? Does he say, no need to be upset, dry your tears, they're in heaven now? No. Does he reiterate Romans 12.15, mourn with those who mourn? No, he doesn't. It's not just be consumed with hope alone and it's not solely a share your grief and commiseration response either. No, it's hope within grief. Hope and grief. It's a full measure of grief and a full measure of hope as well. It's what Christopher Watkin, an Australian academic, calls diagonalisation, a biblical picture in which the best aspirations of both seemingly opposed options are fulfilled and in not a way that the proponents of those options would see coming. In the words of John Stott, truth is found not in the middle, not in one extreme, but in both extremes. Hope in full, but grief also in full. So there are two mistakes that are easy to make when responding to death. They are not enough grief and not enough hope. So point one, grief in the face of death is appropriate and right. Isn't it the case that the closer the relationship, the greater the grief? A distant cousin dies, you feel a little sad. A friend passes away and you're deeply affected. But your child dies and you are devastated. Why? The closer the relationship, the greater the grief. This really shouldn't surprise us. After all, the foundation of reality is relationship. Before the universe existed, there was relationship within the Godhead. The three persons of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. It's no wonder that the breaking of relationships of love, the very core of existence, should grieve us so. Yes, we should mourn together. Hope does not negate grief. Here's a vivid example, that of Jesus himself with his friend Lazarus, whom he dearly loved when Lazarus died. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, he knew that Lazarus had died and knew that he was going to raise him from the dead, even referring to himself himself as the resurrection and the life. And when Mary ran out to meet him at the edge of town, how did Jesus comfort her? Did he say, don't worry Mary, no need to grieve for I'm just about to raise him from the life again? No, instead we get the famous verse, Jesus wept. You see, death is bad. Death is an intruder, an enemy, not part of the original design. In fact, when Jesus came to Lazarus' tomb, most Bible translations say he was deeply moved and troubled. However, as author and professor Nancy Piercy puts it, in the original Greek, this phrase actually means furious indignation. It was used for example, of war horses rearing up just before charging into battle. Standing before the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus is outraged. Why? 
Evil is not normal. The world was created good and beautiful, but now he'd entered his father's world that had become ruined and broken. And his reaction? He was furious. Jesus wept at the pain and sorrow caused by the enemy invasion that had devastated his beautiful creation. A small point of application here is that it's not somehow wrong or anti-Christian to get help dealing with loss. Seeing a psychologist or grief counsellor could be really beneficial, as it has been for some close friends of mine. Non-Christians can also make the not enough grief mistake, but in a different way. Many take a naturalist approach, which says death is nothing to fear, it's just natural. Death is just a natural, painless nothingness, just a natural part of life. The Thessalonians would have been familiar with this stance as it stems from the Greek philosopher Epicurus who said, death is nothing to us every, since everything good or bad lies in sensation and death is to be deprived of sensation. He is saying that death is bad only in that it might reduce your opportunity for the experiences you can have while alive. But it's not really bad, not in and of itself. Uh, recently, I listened to an episode of the CPX podcast that was an interview with a non-Christian opinion editor at the Sydney Morning Herald, Chris Harrison. He was recounting how, when he was 12 years old, he was playing cricket on the weekend and when he was struck in the chest by a bouncer, his heart stopped and he was clinically dead for two minutes. When he awoke after being revived by paramedics, he apparently had a smile on his face and he recounts it like this. There was nothing unique about my death apart from the fact I came back from it. And while I'm glad I did, I would have been quite happy to say, in that zen I wasn't capable of regret, sorrow or frustration. I I wasn't capable of conscious thought. All I felt was warm and safe. In the interview, Chris goes on to describe how this experience meant he didn't fear death from then on. He became an aeroplane acrobatics pilot. He moved to other countries with only a bag on his back and on. If, like Chris Harrison, you accept this idea that death is just a natural part of life, then hope for life after death will be replaced with the hope of a good life or even an exciting life. Yet in reality, most people, for most people, this is actually a great burden to bear. What if your life isn't that good? You don't, it doesn't meet your goals or expectations. You don't meet that special someone. You fall sick. There's a pandemic. Or maybe you do achieve your goals, but you're just not that satisfied. Or maybe your life's just a bit dull. Ultimately, it's a flimsy, vulnerable hope. Now, largely, those who hold this view haven't given it much deep thought or reflection. If they did, then they would realise that it offered no hope at all, especially for when a young person dies. But there are some people who have thought about it deeply, who have thought deeply about death from this perspective. Uh, One such person is the atheist mathematician and philosopher Bertrand Russell. He said, There is darkness without, and when I die there will be darkness within. There is no splendour, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment, and then nothing. What is life? Well, to Bertrand Russell, it is nothing but triviality for a moment. Another great mind of the 20th century, uh, atheist physicist Stephen Hawking, puts it even more bluntly. I regard the the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. 
There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. If we were to take this view, life has no genuine meaning. We were mistaken about the nature of the person with whom we thought we had a relationship with because they too would ultimately be meaningless. Just another computer, now broken and worthless. In reference to the death of his wife, C.S. Lewis reflected, if H is not now, then she never was. I mistook a person for a cloud of atoms. Do you see what he was saying? That under this view, relationships themselves are pretend, imaginary, really. And this he did not accept. Therefore, the death is natural perspective is bad for our humanity. It, is the, it has the potential to lead us down the path of dehumanising others, to treat them like they were merely part of our own experience, their value being tied more closely to our experience than the value they have as a person in and of themselves. Let's dive back to Chris Harrison and his near-death experience. You see, the most interesting part of the interview was the very thing that inspired the interview in the first place, that for the first time since his near-death experience, his own son's cricket team was scheduled to play at the very same oval where it happened 20 years prior. It was the first time he'd been back, but this time he was a dad and this put things in a whole new perspective for him. You see, while it wasn't necessarily that bad of an experience for him, he finally reflected on what it must have been like for his own father, beside himself with worry as he madly tried to keep up with the ambulance. And Chris himself realised that a part of him did fear death, not really the experience of it for himself, but for the sake of his children. Death is bad primarily because, uh, bad not primarily because it is an end to living or a missing out on experiences. It is primarily bad because it ends relationships. It splits us up from the ones we, uh, from the ones we are meant to be with. In fact, one of the deepest longings of our hearts is for deep relationships that last, eternal love relationships. As death robs us of these eternal love relationships, grief in the face of death is appropriate and it's right. However, uh, point two, as Christians, hope is a powerful resource for dealing with death and for living well now. And here, Paul shows us the second mistake shows us the second mistake we can make, not enough hope. So look with me again at the second half of verse 13. Do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Hope does not make grief go away, but it changes its flavour. It will become a hope-filled grief rather than a hopeless grief. Hope is mentioned all throughout the Bible, but what does this passage add? It's not another John 3.16, is it? You know, you shall not perish but have eternal life. No, here the emphasis is on no one lost. Here the description is not primarily a hope of eternal life but a hope of eternal relationship. You see, there was a death in their community but we will be caught up together, verse 17, and we will be with the Lord forever. What a difference this makes when we lose a brother or sister in Christ. Yes, you grieve losing them, but your grief is filled with the hope of reunion. Now, notice that Paul says the rest of mankind have no hope. Isn't it a bit rich to say that no one but Christians have any hope? 
Well, yes, of course it is. The Thessalonians would have been familiar with popular ideas that did include a form of afterlife. For example, the teachings of Plato. So this phrase must have just been hyperbole, that the Christian hope surpasses any other hope so dramatically that by comparison there is no other hope at all. I think it is helpful for us to recognise the sort of things that those around us today hope in so that by comparison we more fully understand the Christian hope. Now some of these do have some good aspects yet all of them certainly offer too little hope. First, Plato's views are still alive and well today. Uh, The idea that the soul escapes the body which was just a temporary vessel for the soul anyway and you exist as a spirit in some higher plane. Oh, he's up there looking down on us, chiselling away at his latest woodwork project, uh, as someone said at my grandfather's funeral. Second, there is what I might call the Tower of Babel hope, the idea that some have of making their own name great, to become significant and remembered for generations, and so to, in a sense, live on. Uh, You may have heard the Ernest Hemingway quote, every man dies two deaths when he's buried in the ground and the last time someone says his name. In some ways, men can be immortal. It sounds inspiring at first until one realises that not many reach this lofty height and even if you do get a wing of a hospital named after you, one day it will crumble down. Uh, The third type of hope out there uh, is what I'm calling the hope of progeny, that you live on through family or through passing generations of the human race. Uh, This includes the idea of progress, uh, that things are generally getting better, We're on a trajectory towards utopia. And while there are some good and valid ideas here, uh, this hope is all too easily cast in shadow by things like climate change, a housing crisis, cost of living pressures, family breakdown and so on. Uh, Fourth, uh, many Eastern religions believe that we return to our non-personal pure state and uh, join back with the all-soul, like a drop of water returning to the ocean. Uh, There is also a popular secular version of this, Uh, which advises gradually letting letting your ego recede until you can just relax in a sort of everything-nothingness. Fifth, there is wishful thinking hope or the ignorantly hopeful hope. Uh, Do you remember the Wiz Khalifa and Charlie Puth song See You Again? Uh, It was commissioned by the Fast and the Furious franchise in the wake of the tragic death of cast member Paul Walker and the the chorus goes, It's been a long day without you, my friend, and I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. Uh, Spent 12 weeks at number one, um, so clearly it resonated. The the longing for continued connection leads many to say they believe in some sort of post-death reuniting, uh, but when pressed, they have no backing to this belief, no reasons for it or reassurance of it. Even the most generous version of each of these options provide far too little hope. In this passage, Paul is advocating for real hope, solid hope, fulfilling hope, not wishful thinking or ignorant hope, but knowing hope. Verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. This is the next great contribution of this passage to our understanding of hope, that we will be fully informed about what it is exactly that we're hoping for. Other passages tend to deal with only a specific section of what is to come, This passage is probably the most detailed in the Bible in terms of the whole thing. It mentions dying, being asleep in Christ, the second coming of Jesus, resurrection 
and implying return to renewed creation. Hence, we'll go for a holistic approach, including the distinctive things about the Christian hope, and we'll see that each of these distinctives respond in some way to the five alternative hopes that I've just mentioned. So we turn to verses 14 to 17 and our third point, uh, the encouragement of the knowledge of the Christian hope. So from verse 14, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Let's look at the distinctives of the Christian hope through the stages outlined in the passage. Those who have died or will die in Christ are referred to as being asleep. Later, the Lord Jesus will come down from heaven. Those who are asleep in him will rise first and be caught up with those alive and meet the Lord in the air. And then what? We're left hanging. No, that isn't the end of the story. Let's look a bit more carefully. First, do you notice that those who have died are not described as being dead. They're described as being asleep. Why? Is it because you're unconscious, unaware until a later time? No. For on the cross, Jesus said to the criminal next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Another time, Jesus tells the disciples that he is going to prepare a room for them in his father's house where he will dwell with them. Well, is it because sleep is restful? Well, that may possibly be part of it. Uh, However, when the Bible talks about us looking forward to joining in God's rest, it's not simply talking of laying down our burdens for a state of total inactivity. It's referring to a Sabbath rest, a conscious and communal enjoyment of God's presence, the satisfaction in the fruits of your labour. Now, I think the picture of sleep is used to highlight that death is temporary. You wake up. Sleep is a temporary middle state, an intermediate state, a time when Christians wait with Jesus spiritually in paradise, in the Father's house, in Abraham's bosom, in heaven. Sleeping, waiting to wake for bodily resurrection when Jesus returns. And how will Jesus return? Loudly. His personal presence announced by the archangel and trumpets. Unmissable, unavoidable, the trumpet call of God announcing his personal arrival and presence, trumpets announcing victory over death and trumpets for the powerful command for the dead to rise and to meet Jesus in the clouds. Now this word meet is quite interesting. Uh, The connotations would have been immediate to Thessalonian readers. For in those times, whenever a victorious army returned to their city, the dignitaries in the city would not wait for them to come all the way in. No, they would go out to meet them while the army was still some way off and then return with the army back to the city together, thus joining in uh, with the victory. 
We are not left hanging in the air. We are joining in the victory and coming back down with Jesus to a renewed creation. As it says in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from the heaven of God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Let's think about just one of the pictures of new creation used here, that of a glorious city, which I think is the picture most strongly implied by our passage. Why that picture? Surely the picture of a great feast or a paradise like a garden or even you know, a tropical island beach would be more enticing. Uh, why a city? What does it have? People. Cities have lots of people. The city metaphor emphasises overflowing abundance of relationships. No loneliness, no jealousy or feelings of inadequacy, no self-conscious social awkwardness, just perfect, abundant community. And the Bible gives us more than a picture of new creation. It also gives us a preview. Verse 14, Jesus died and rose again. He has gone first. Jesus' resurrection, his bodily resurrection, is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The rest of the harvest will follow. We too will be physically raised and given a new body. To summarise, the Christian hope is not about our own greatness, but about the greatness of God. God the Father and the Lord Jesus. What a relief. The Christian hope affirms the goodness of creation and the idea of progress. It values what we do now towards care for creation and creatures and values exercising our own creativity and gifts. But these efforts won't be disheartening, as they frequently are now, but fulfilling. You'll finally be able to write the song and sing it like you've always wanted. You'll finally grow the perfect tomatoes. You'll finally solve the Riemann hypothesis. The Christian hope is not purely spiritual, but spiritual and physical. We'll have a body that we love and we're not ashamed of, a body that works and doesn't decay. There'll be hugs, there'll be dancing, there'll be feasting. The Christian hope is personal. We don't just become part of the ocean, indistinguishable from any other part, which is great news because the Christian hope is also communal and relational. We'll be joined with the full body of Christ, God's people, in relationship with God and with each other. And finally, point four on our outlines, the Christian hope is not ignorantly hopeful, but based on a firm foundation. It is not wishful thinking, but a confident hope in a certain future, based on evidence, based on the evidence of the past. I hope I get paid on Tuesday, you say. Well, your employment contract says you get paid on Tuesdays, and you did indeed get paid last Tuesday. Is that kind of confident hope, built on the promises of God and with the historical evidence of Jesus' resurrection to back it up. So where does the confidence come from? How can you get this confident hope? Well, it doesn't come from a clever philosophy. It comes from a person, the person of Jesus Christ, knowing him and trusting him. Jesus, who on the cross experienced the ripping apart of relationship with the Father, he did not cry out, 
Father, I know this is all worth it. I'll rise soon, so this is great. No, he cried, Abba, Father, why have you forsaken me? He said, if possible, take this cup from me, but not, your will, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus experienced the grief of death. But it was a hope-filled grief that allowed him to trust God and not fear death. Be angry, yes. Be sad, yes, but not fear, trust and hope. Hope for his wedding day when he will be united with his bride, the church. Jesus, whose bodily resurrection is the first fruits, the example and guarantee of our hope. A bodily hope, a personal hope, a hope of relationship and community. As some of you might know, Tim Keller, the well-known writer and pastor, passed away a few months ago. Uh, His memorial service was made available online, which he planned himself in advance. In it, there was barely a mention of himself, despite his many accolades. It was all about Jesus. Throughout the service, there were six specifically chosen songs. Uh, and The second last was a hymn titled, Jesus Lives and So Shall I. Uh, Let me read verses 1 and 4 to finish. Jesus lives and so shall I. Death thy sting is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives, the bands of death to sever. He shall raise me with the just, Jesus is my hope and trust. Jesus lives and reigns supreme, and his kingdom still remaining. I shall also be with him, ever living, ever reigning. None of all his saints are lost, Jesus is my hope and trust. Let us pray. Almighty Father, the loss of our dear brothers and sisters in Christ troubles us and fills us with a deep grief. Remind us that you humbled yourself to come to earth and die, that you have experienced the same loss and separation. But praise be to you, God, that in your mercy, by doing so, you made a way for us to spend eternity in relationship with you and with each other. Fill us with this hope and help us to encourage one another with it. Amen.